There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kruminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, good to have you back for another week in a row. Great to be here, and we've got a good show lined up, I think. Well, I think so too, but we're a little biased, and I guess that's what we're going to get into today, our biases. But last week, we talked about presidential elections and whether or not it mattered if a Republican or a Democrat was leading the U.S. government. And I guess it didn't matter according to the data. And I would encourage listeners to go back and listen to that one because we get that question a lot right now. And I think that leads into our conversation for today. And our conversation is on behavioral biases. And this is something that isn't really that new, Greg. No, I think the history of behavioral economics and identifying those biases and how they have a role in finance goes back, what, 30, 40 years now? Yeah, actually, when I was doing some research for a paper, I came across some information, of course, on two of the more famous behavioral finance people, that being Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. And it was in 1974 when they actually came out with some discussions and research regarding how individuals make decisions with mental rules of thumb, and they called them heuristics. Now, the work of Tversky and Kahneman basically created the field of behavioral finance. And since then, there's been a lot of work put into it. Wouldn't you agree? Definitely. And I think maybe it's just worth reviewing behavioral finance, how it's different than traditional finance. And so a lot of the work that we've talked about in some of the early podcasts where we talk about traditional finance, whether it's modern portfolio theory or any of the other efficient market hypothesis, a lot of those are based on the assumption that humans behave in a rational way and will always act in their own best interests. Or to put it more succinctly, that humans are rational. And I think the concept behind behavioral finance is based on the fact that humans are normal. And normal is not always rational. Exactly. That's right. Well, I know Tversky and Kahneman put out a number of papers talking about this in mainstream economics. They're best known perhaps for their development of what was called prospect theory. Now, this goes back to 1979, which shows that decisions are not always optimal, just what you're talking about. They're not always made in a rational way. And our willingness to take risks is influenced by the way in which choices are framed. So they're context dependent. That seems to make sense. Now, they do argue, again, that we come up with these shortcuts, these mental shortcuts, these heuristics, and this has led to a whole field of behavioral finance, as we talked about. Some other people that have come out and talked about behavioral finance in this way would be Richard Thaler, who is a Nobel Prize winner for his work on behavioral finance or behavioral economics. Now, interestingly enough, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in 2002 for his work on behavioral finance. And Thaler won a Nobel Prize in, when was it? 2017 for his work in the same field. Now, I have a bit of a controversy here, Greg. I'm not sure how to solve it. 
Which is? Well, when I was doing my research, there were many people that pointed out that Tversky and Kahneman were basically the fathers of behavioral finance. But then other sources call Richard Thaler the father of behavioral finance. So how many fathers can there be? I guess behavioral finance has more than one father. (laughs) (laughs) There's a whole bunch of jokes that could be made there, but we'll leave this PG. But they do point out in total, there are something like 200 different behavioral biases that have been established. And that's something we're going to get into in a little bit. But for now, well, we're not going to get into all 200 because this show would be like, I don't know, two and a half hours long. But for this discussion, we're going to talk about some of the more common biases and what they are and what they mean. I think with these biases, I mean, our hope is that as we talk through them, that listeners will be able to think of situations that they might have fallen prey to the same biases. And I think it's fair to say that all of us, whether you're an investment advisor, and I've been doing this for 25 years, you've been doing it for almost as long, we still fall prey to the same biases. It's impossible to avoid them, and that's because we're all human. But I think it's good to identify them because then when other situations arise in the future, we can understand what's happening to us. So let's just talk about some of the common biases. The first one is anchoring. So anchoring is our habit of focusing on one salient point and ignoring all others, such as the price at which we buy a stock. So anchoring, for example, let's say you bought a stock at $30. A share. A share. And the price has moved down to $25 a share because of some information that's come out about that stock. So many of us, will say, well, I'll tell you what, I mean, it traded as high as $35. I paid 30. It's been as high as 35, but now it's 25. I'm going to wait until it gets back to at least $30, what I paid for it, or 35, which is the high price, before I sell. And so that decision would be made even if there's information that suggests that there's problems lying ahead for the stock and it actually should be sold based on all the fundamental. So waiting to sell a stock until it gets back to a preset price that you've anchored in your mind is an example of an anchoring bias. And it actually sort of overlaps a little bit with another bias called loss aversion. Well, actually, before you get into that, this isn't just stocks. We were talking before we were recording, this could be your house. Absolutely. It could be anything. So when we talk about behavioral finance, it really relates to anything that has a financial component to it. It's not just stock investing at all. And actually, speaking of houses, that would be a classic example. If you want to sell your house at some point after real estate run-up has occurred, you're going to believe that your house is worth what it was worth last year, regardless of what the current market price is. But your house is actually only worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for. Absolutely. That's right. That's an example of anchoring. And as I say, loss aversion is another bias that's very similar. But what it's based on is the fact that investors have a stronger desire to avoid a loss than to obtain gains. And that's by a ratio of about two to one. And so that's why most investors do not want to sell stocks that are trading at a loss, even though the stocks, the prospects may well have changed and there's far better potential stocks or investments to be made. Wait, but that's not a recommendation. That's absolutely not a recommendation. (laughs) So loss aversion basically just says that we don't like to sell anything at a loss and we'd rather forfeit future gains, to be honest, than avoid losses. And so that kind of ties in. Another bias that we all fall prey to is something called cognitive dissonance. And that's the effect of simultaneously trying to believe two incompatible things at the same time. 
So a current example that we're all living through right now might be the stock market and the economy. How can the market be trading at an all-time high when the economy is being devastated by COVID-19? And so when we're faced with that cognitive dissonance, it's very difficult. It causes a lot of stress and anxiety. And in some cases, it may actually cause investors to do things like say, averaging down on a price of a stock. So you bought a stock in the first place, believing that it had great prospects. And if things don't work out and the price goes down, you've now got conflicting beliefs. We bought it in the first place thinking it had a great potential. New facts have emerged, which maybe suggest that it doesn't have it. And you might say, well, I still believe in this stock and therefore I'm going to actually buy more at a lower price. And that may or may not be a smart thing to do at that point. And this one, as you say, is happening every day around us. Like, I don't want to discount what's happening. I was listening to another podcast last week and they were talking about how if somebody's lost their job and they've lost the ability to find work, do they really care if the stock market's at an all-time high? I wouldn't think so. (laughs) Right? Like, So that's right. I'm not sure how that fits in there, but it just seemed to. Another example of cognitive dissonance, which we mentioned in, we've mentioned in previous podcasts, is that when sometimes people will look at a situation like what's happening right now, or maybe back in March, when the stock market was down about 35% from the high, and people will say, it's different this time. And that whole concept of it's different this time is just our way of trying to reconcile something that's happening right now against our beliefs as to how it should be behaving. And as soon as it's not behaving in the way we would have expected, we look for answers. And those answers would be something like it's different this time. Another common bias is the confirmation bias. And basically what this says is we interpret evidence to support our prior beliefs. And if all else fails, ignore evidence that contradicts it. And so we tend to gravitate towards research reports or analyst reports or news on the financial networks that supports our existing beliefs that confirm what we already believe, and we tend to discount information that's contrary to it. And that's something that people see not only in financial terms, but, I don't know, for example, look at the U.S. media. So there's CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, for example. And others. And many others. And if you're more of a Democrat supporter or more left-leaning in your views, your chances are you'll be more attracted to CNN or MSNBC. And if you tend to be more Republican or more right-leaning in your political views, you might be more inclined to listen to Fox News. And really, and having watched both of those or all of those networks, you can see how watching them would absolutely confirm your pre-existing views. Couldn't this also like spill over into what we're going through right now where we've got mandatory masks in Calgary? Yes. So wouldn't this also apply to that where, let's say we're all wearing a mask and nobody gets sick? Doesn't that sort of confirm what we had thought would happen? Or let's say somebody does get sick and we were all wearing a mask. And if our underlying belief was that they don't really work, wouldn't that just sort of confirm that? Sure. And not only that, if you have a belief that masks are a good way to prevent the spread of the disease, then when you see research or statements on the media that suggest that, you'll be more likely to believe that information than if you hear a research report that says that there's no difference in the spread of the disease, whether you wear a mask or not. And we're not here to say whether there is a difference Uh, or isn't a difference. Of course not. We're just saying that (laughs) applying this to confirmation bias. Exactly. The other thing where you might see confirmation bias is where people will hold large amounts of their company stock. And of course, you work for the company, 
So it must be a good company and you show your belief in that company by holding on to possibly very large and concentrated positions of your own company stock. And that may be something that's not in your best interest, depending on if it's causing your portfolio to be wildly offside. And so we have to be careful of confirmation bias to make sure that we're not sort of getting too far into one direction. And of course, you're holding that stock because you are familiar. Exactly. Isn't that the next one you're going to talk about? Exactly. So the next bias we'll talk about is the familiarity effect, where being familiar with something makes you favorite. So for example, I mean, a classic example in being in Calgary is energy stocks. Many people are familiar with the energy company names, even if they're not employed in the energy industry, but they're familiar with the names of the large companies and they feel more comfortable investing in those companies because they're familiar to them. They might have family members that work for those companies or work for similar companies. And so familiarity also would oftentimes result in maybe some concentrated portfolios. And examples of familiarity effect would be things like buying shares of retailers that you like to shop at, or say, buying shares of a large media company that your kids might enjoy some of their various products. So the familiarity effect is something that will cause people to buy stocks, not necessarily based on their fundamentals, but just because they feel more comfortable with them. And that also ties into another bias, which is very similar, called the affinity bias. And the affinity bias really is just, for example, if you feel strongly about environmental issues, then you may tend to invest in companies that are involved in the environmental industry. Whether or not those companies individually have great business prospects or not, you will find an affinity to those and make investing decisions based on that rather than on fundamentals. That's a whole area that's being targeted these days, this ESG. Absolutely. And I think what's happening there is that companies, whether they're fund companies or investment managers that are putting together portfolios geared towards that are capitalizing on people's desire to invest in those types of companies. And probably over time, then those portfolios will improve as the fundamental analysis will find its way into that as well, in addition to just the fact that these are in the sector that people feel an affinity to. So another one, hindsight bias. This is one that we all do. We're unable to stop ourselves thinking that we predicted events, even though we're particularly bad at predicting the future. And so a classic example right now, and I find myself subject to it big time, is as I sit here, I say, boy, I should have, I just knew back in February when the pandemic was identified in China, that this was going to have a huge impact on the stock markets. Or, gee, everybody knew that technology stocks were going to skyrocket with everybody being locked at home. But of course, that's just maybe call it revisionist history, because of course, at the time, none of us knew that. Well, of course, because if you knew it, you would have made a different decision and you would have a different outcome. Exactly. So the hindsight bias basically just says that we believe that we knew something in the past, which we actually didn't know. And we only know it now based on history and what we already know. Another one is home bias. People prefer to invest in their own local markets rather than looking for wider diversification. That home country bias appears not only in Canada, where investors tend to have a lot more Canadian stocks than global stocks. But everywhere in the world, Australians have more Australian stocks than they should. Americans have more U.S. stocks than they should. So home bias is something that does affect portfolios and can result in overconcentration. Overconfidence is another common bias where we're too confident in our own abilities 
And we really have to think about looking beyond that to try to build portfolios or to make investments without putting too much stock in our own abilities. Just because, of course, nobody can predict the future. Nobody knows for sure what's going to happen. We know that now. But that overconfidence sometimes can lead to more concentrated portfolios or to investors making big bets. And big bets often result in risk. The recency bias is the tendency to weight recent information more heavily. And so what that results in is you look at the market back in March and the market was down 35%. And at that point, people were saying, oh my gosh, I'm not going to get in or stay invested in the market when it's down 35%. That was one month. In another month, it'll be down 70%. And so you tend to put a lot of stock in what happened within the last month. Then, of course, looking at the markets now, it's, oh my gosh, the markets are up dramatically since March. I think things are just going to keep going. Why would they stop? And so we tend to rely heavily on what's most recent. And lastly, of course, we could go on for hours. As you mentioned, there's over 200 identified cognitive and behavioral biases. The last one I want to talk about is just the self-serving or self-attribution bias. Oh, by the way, this is my favorite one. Exactly, where things that have worked out, we put down to personal skill and we knew it all along. And things that did not work out were due to some sort of external forces beyond our control. And that's a tendency we all have. So there's the top nine or 10 there, but as I say, we could go on forever. It definitely could be a long show just talking about those differences. I mean, 200 would take us quite a ways, but of those, the ones that really I think about quite often are more along the lines of familiarity, hindsight, and self-attribution. And I see that all the time, Greg, in talking to not just investors, but just people in general. If somebody buys a cabin somewhere or a cottage, as they call it in Ontario, and that market goes up, well, aren't they smart? Yet there's an economic downturn and they're stuck with this cabin or cottage and they can't unload it. And geez, if everybody else wouldn't have just cratered this market, I would have done so much better. For sure. Anyways, just a quick example of that. But Russell Investments put out an article, and this goes back just to 2018, and they highlighted some common biases, some of those which you talked about. But what they talked about was what drives investors to select one response over another. And in the article, they said it really depends on a number of factors. What are the investors' objectives? What's their risk tolerance, return target, investors' beliefs? What about the market cycle? All kinds of things that have to do with them and what's happening. So depending on the investor's beliefs, preferences, emotions, and past experiences, they can come to very different conclusions. The example that we were going to talk about, Greg, was let's say, for example, if the markets fell 10% right now, take us through three scenarios of what somebody might do. By the way, this has happened. If you look at the technology stocks, as of yesterday, they were down 10% from their high in three days. Well, Tesla was down and not recommending Tesla. Of course not. But Tesla was down like 20% yesterday. That's right, exactly. And so when the markets fall 10%, you see news headlines about the possibility of maybe a near-term recession or whatever, you might have a few different responses. So one common response might be to stop investing until the market stopped falling. Another investor might even start selling in case the 10% is just the beginning of a much deeper downturn, like the start of a bear market. Or a contrarian investor may actually see a 10% market correction as an opportunity to buy stocks on sale at a lower prices. And so there you've got the same event and three different types of behaviors. 
I like this idea, though, of contrarian investors because everybody considers, not everybody, many people consider themselves to be contrarian investors. A higher number of investors than the average consider themselves to be on the other side of the trade. And as we've talked in the past, when you think about it, the first or the second investor who decides they're going to start selling is trading their stocks with the third type of investor who's buying the contrarian. And so because there's always a seller or a buyer for every seller, you see those same different reactions with regards to the same event happening. Now, Greg, what about if a stock or a sector or an asset class rallies? What might be three common Well, again, one common response might be to follow the herd and join in the buying activity, which is going to have the effect of bidding up prices. You may find some cautious investors that say, wait and see if this rally is going to be sustained before they step in. Maybe there's just some euphoria. And contrarian investors at that point, they may sell their stock because they believe the prices have been bid up too high. So again, some beliefs may lead to successful investment strategies and behaviors and others might actually lead to biases that are counterproductive and jeopardize the likelihood of achieving your objectives as an investor. So in this article that you mentioned, Russell basically points out, again, because there's so many biases, as we've talked, over 200, they tend to try to group them into sort of common groups. And the first one they talk about is hurting, I should say, where people tend to mimic the actions of the larger group. And so if people are bidding up stock prices, then investors will join the crowd and they might end up buying high and ultimately selling low. Overconfidence, just tending to overestimate or exaggerate our ability to successfully perform certain tasks or achieve certain results. And that may result in people trading their portfolios too often. Familiarity, which we talked about, where we tend to prefer what's familiar or well-known, resulting in overweighting home country and therefore increased concentration. And mental accounting, where we tend to separate money into separate mental accounts. And so what we end up then with is what sometimes you end up with what's called naive diversification. So you say, okay, well, I don't want all my money in one pot. So I'm going to find 10 pots and I'm going to put 10% of my money into each. It is diversification, but it's not diversification with a purpose. It's just diversification by dividing your money up naively. And that's the fourth big group that Russell believes. Yeah, so just owning more of the same pots. Yeah, it could be. (laughs) I looked at an article from CNBC. This goes back to April of this year, and they were interviewing Jason Zweig. I think I said that right. And Jason Zweig is somebody that you and I have talked about together for many years, actually. And he wrote a book called Your Money and Your Brain. And in it, he talks about things like, well, why do people make that decision? So when the stock market's falling, why do they sell out? If they know in their heart of hearts that cycles recover and things go back up. And what he talked about was that the reason we do that is we process financial loss in the same part of our brain as mortal danger. That's kind of scary. It is. And Blair and I actually talked about this during our podcast episode on doing financial planning versus actually following a plan. And what we talked about was that Your amygdala is the part of your brain that takes you away from dangerous situations. It basically gets hijacked, according to Zweig, and it allows you or allows your brain, I guess, to make a decision that you wouldn't normally make, and it's all based on fear. And so this fear trade gets played out many times. For your example, Greg, back in March when the stock market was down 35%, well, obviously somebody's selling, and obviously somebody else is buying at the same time. Otherwise, there's no transaction. 
Correct. Yeah, you bet. But those are very different circumstances. The person that's selling out versus the person that's buying in. And I guess I would kind of think of the person that's selling out as they're fearful. So I guess how I would relate this to Kahneman and Tversky is that it's just some more proof and evidence of we have these heuristics or these biases that basically take us in a direction. Now, I know you're going to get into a little bit about what to do about that, how to fight them. So why don't we go there rather than being so negative all the time? There was an article in the CFA Institute last year talking about behavioral biases. And it starts off just as we started off saying behavioral finance rests on a simple premise. The biggest risks in investing are embedded in ourselves as decision makers. Biology encourages our brains to take cognitive shortcuts that can cause big problems. Now, there's a psychologist, Daniel Crosby, and actually we're hoping to have him on our podcast sometime in the future. But he believes we don't have to be our own worst enemies when it comes to investing. He says the news is not actually that bad. It's possible to navigate around our innate shortcomings and counteract our biases, which is good. Interesting, he says, human nature is both a miracle and a mess. Things that have given rise to our successes as species from a reproductive standpoint, from an evolutionary standpoint, often serve us very poorly as investors. So this is that flight or fight response that we've had since the days of finding fire and escaping saber-toothed tigers. Exactly. So, I mean, risk aversion, he says, has helped us adapt and survive for thousands of years, but leads us to make bad financial choices. And the key thing is the first step to overcoming these errors and making better decisions is identifying those biases that influence our judgment. And as we've said, academics have named about 200 types of biases. And he jokes that a lot of the academics that have named those, some of these little biases were just to make tenure. So there's a lot of academics around this whole field. And we can't possibly keep track of all of those 200. But again, as I mentioned earlier, we do try to group these biases into different categories, and then we can look at the types of behavioral errors. And according to Daniel Crosby, the four areas are these. The first one is ego. So ego-driven biases are the ones that manifest as overconfidence or the belief that we will consistently perform better than average. And an example of that is in surveys, 80% of all drivers think they're better than average, which obviously has to be statistically impossible. So we believe our insights are more accurate and our measurements more precise than those of others. And over-precision is one of the ways that we get it wrong. Well, I know another one he points out for grouping is conservation. So these types of biases occur when we stick with what we know, which is sounds a lot like familiarity or home bias, things of that nature. In the article, he talks about the Mona Lisa and how it's gained such fame as being one of the most famous paintings in the world. I've seen the Mona Lisa. Me too. Didn't you think when you saw it at the Louvre, and this is going to sound something, I don't know, it wasn't that impressive. So you mean it was like, hmm, yeah, nice picture. (laughs) So we had a tour guide and we actually asked her like, why is this painting so, I don't know, so well known? And according to her, this is her story, it was because it was stolen. And that's what made it famous. Because when you look at it and I compare it to other art, it doesn't really jump out. But anyways, conservation, let's move on to the next. One group, which is the attention biases, and these allow our memories to influence our assessment of probabilities. So, for example, Crosby talks about how memories of the September 11th terror attacks made many people very wary of plane travel. So, as a result, more people opted for automobiles for long-distance travel, 
And in turn, that led to an increase in traffic fatalities. And that's something that I guess we do all the time in big ways and in small ways. That must be happening now because there's a lot of people avoiding air traffic. Happening again, for sure. And emotion was the fourth bucket that you lumped things into and that we confuse our emotions with our risk management. We've seen this so many times over the years. Look, I don't want to be hard on people for making decisions because there are times when people genuinely are fearful of what's happening around them. For sure. The reason we bring up these biases and the reason we wanted to spend this time today was not to point out how silly it was to fall trapped to them, but to talk about how there's a better way that you can actually just, as long as you understand what's happening, you can give yourself the opportunity to make a better decision. So true. And I think that's when we look at, okay, well, what does this all mean? So what have we learned when we learn about behavioral biases? And that is that, well, first of all, these are all things that happen to us because we're normal, because we're human, and that's the way we're built. But acknowledging that and understanding that then can allow us to make different choices when things happen. So we know that most of the time, maybe two-thirds of the time, stock markets go up. And so that means we know that a third of the time, stock markets are going to go down. And if we know that, and we can prepare ourselves for that when we build our portfolios that are goal-based and goal-driven, meaning we're trying to achieve a certain level of wealth for retirement or trying to save for particular goals, then we can go in with an understanding that these events are going to happen. They always have, and they will probably always continue to. And we can structure a portfolio that is based on those goals and achieving those goals based on sound investment principles and everything we know from history and try to fight off the natural tendency to make some of these behavioral mistakes that can happen. And by identifying those in ourselves and know when we're doing it, we can maybe make a better decision or a better choice coming out of that. So, And in the end, of course, what does it come down to? It comes down to what it always comes down to, understanding your tolerance for risk, understanding your goals, building a properly allocated and well-diversified portfolio, and rebalancing it when these types of dislocations happen in the markets. But you and I can both relate to any investor who's made any one of those decisions What I like to think of it is like, what happens at home? When I make a decision on something, well, in my family, there's four of us, which means there's three other people that can tell me whether or not that was a good decision or a bad decision. And then I can interpret their response to either decide what to do with the next decision. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I can look back in my own family situation and I have all sorts of decisions that I can look back on and realize that, okay, that one didn't work out so well. That was not the right decision, but it was the right decision at the time, possibly. Yeah, one of those decisions might have even been to be part of that family. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we won't go there. (laughs) Not in your case. I'm just talking (laughs) to somebody else's. But for fun, what are you reading these days or what are you watching? We've been doing more of the binging when given the opportunity. My daughter is at home from university and we're taking the opportunity to expose her to all sorts of classic movies from many years ago, possibly from before she was born. And we're doing that with each other. So we introduced my daughter to Highlander, a classic, of course, from I believe 1989. And she introduced me, if you can believe it, to The Princess Bride, which I've never seen, which again is about a 33 or 35 year old movie. So that's what we're doing, bringing back the oldies. Ted Cruz's favorite movie, Princess Bride. <laughs> that's, that's right. It's funny. I started reading a book just this week. It's called The Downfall of Money, <laughs> of all things. So considering the topic that we're on, a few years back, I read a book called The Ascent of Money. So this is obviously 
the inverse to that. But it's a book about Germany and during World War One and World War Two and how basically their currency was devalued. So it's not funny. It's ironic that a lot of the things that I'm not talking about atrocities of a war or anything like that. I'm just talking about economics. Economically speaking, some of the things that occurred then seem to be occurring now. Interesting. Well, I hope the downfall of money is not uh, prescient or a preview of things to come. Exactly. All right. Well, listen, thanks for joining us today on The Free Lunch. We'll be back next time when we'll be talking about something even more interesting. Sounds great. See you next time. Thank you for listening to The Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.